Thank you, Ethan. Good morning, Wilshire. Oh, that is bad. It's like I'm up here by myself. I'm going to preach anyway, so it is good to be together. It's been a week, hasn't it? I mean, the heat, this is the first full week that students and teachers have been back in school. You can see it on some of your faces. You can hear it when the preacher tries to greet you and there's nothing. That's, that's the first full week of school kicking in right there. But we're glad that you're here. There are a lot of great things to be excited about, though. I mean, the rain. Boy, have we needed the rain. It's good to have that. And cooler temperatures. College football starts this week. There's a lot to be grateful for. Yodi doesn't look excited for college football. I'm sorry, Jim. We are in 1 Corinthians today, and so I'd like to invite you there with me. And I want you to think back to what it was like to go to Bible class as a kid. You remember that? Walking in there, you get your star for your attendance up on the chart. And you remember what teachers used to do? They would, they would do this little thing with their hands. You remember this, right? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door and there's all the people. You remember that, don't you? That was such a theologically confounding concept to me as a kid. For one, our church didn't have a steeple. That's problematic if you're a kid. Um, for the other, we always felt the need to go through the ritual of saying, now the church isn't actually the building. You remember that? I mean, we'd do the little thing, but then somewhere along the way, then the church isn't the building. And then there was some brother or sister who really felt the need to emphasize the point that we don't go to church. Remember that debate? We don't go to church. The church goes to the building. Yeah, it sounds better that way, doesn't it? So our theology is, is, as kids, it's always messed up with the whole hand thing. But it was, it was a good intention. Well, one of the things that the pandemic of recent really pushed us to think about, what does it mean to be the church? Because if the church goes to the building, but the church can't go to the building, what can the church be? What can the church do? And so for two and a half to three years, hopefully it will be over soon, we've wrestled with this concept of what is church? What does it mean when we say we are the church of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to say we are a member of the church or the member of a church, anything? What does church mean? And so we could go back to our Days in Bible class, and well, the church and the steeple and the people. But it's really been a struggle throughout the pandemic, and I would even say before the pandemic, people were asking this question of what does it mean to be the church? Well, as statisticians are prone to do, they've tackled this problem of church through surveys. And as you look through what social science has done and, and survey results, you find out that this question has really been beneath the surface long before even the pandemic. 
But the pandemic has pushed us to even ask this question a little deeper. People are identifying and participating in any concept of church to a far less degree than at any other time that surveys have been conducted in American culture. So according to data collected in April and May of 2020, Barna said one in three practicing Christians dropped out of church completely during COVID-19. They just gave up, checked out, don't need it. Last June, the AP did a story about the number of churches closing across the United States. There are not enough people who attend. There are not, not enough resources to continue. If you read the Christian Chronicle, there's been a whole series of articles uh, done by Cheryl Mann about where are all the churches going. Congregations are dying and closing. Because on average, people are looking around and saying, we don't need church. The church is irrelevant today. Or church membership as a whole in the United States dropped below 50% for the first time in 2020. That's dating all the way back to when Gallup started doing their survey in 1940. Who needs church? What is church anyway? Well, a few weeks ago, Jim started us on this journey through the book of 1 Corinthians and the church there in Corinth had its own set of problems and its own set of headaches. But when Paul goes to tackle some of those questions and tackle some of those headaches, nagging below the surface of some of those questions is the basic question, what is the church anyway? Because this church was divided and they were fighting over all sorts of stuff. They were fighting over who's the preacher we want to follow. They're fighting over what does it mean to live in community, our sexual ethic, our, our, the way we treat each other. There are people suing each other in Corinth. There are people fighting over what foods we can eat and where we can buy those and where we can eat those. There are people fighting over how worship is supposed to be conducted. And below the surface of all of those questions is the basic question, what are we anyway? What is the church? What are we about? And how you answer those questions played out in the preachers we liked anyway. I mean, let's face it. If the church is supposed to be this place that appeals to outsiders, then you need an appealing preacher. And Paul, I'm sorry, you don't really make the cut. I mean, he wasn't married. He wasn't that great of a, a presenter, at least in his own estimation. He doesn't speak with fancy words and great rhetoric. But worse than that, Paul's message is kind of embarrassing. He's going around talking not about great philosophical concepts that'll wow the philosophers in Corinth. He has the audacity to go around and say, you need to model your life after Jesus Christ who was killed by the Romans. Paul says, I was determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul, do you realize how ridiculous that sounds to the world around us? You're never going to attract people preaching that kind of message. And so if that's what the church is supposed to be, appealing to the outside world on their turf and on their terms, Paul's not going to cut it. 
So at the basis of some of their fights in Corinth, do we follow Paul? Do we follow Apollos? What do we do? How should we live? Is this basic question of what it means to be the church. Now, there were some people in Corinth who wanted to follow Paul. And there were some people in Corinth who wanted to follow Apollos. And can I tell you as a preacher, the temptation it is for people to want to follow you. Can you imagine, Paul, when people from the household of Chloe, which is where Paul finds out kind of what's going on in Corinth, People come back and say, Paul, it's a mess there in Corinth. They're fighting about this and that. They don't get along. They're suing each other. It's kind of a circus when you show up for worship at this church. But Paul, there's a group of people who say you're the one. So why don't you, Paul, take those people and start your own group? Or there were people who wanted to follow Apollos. Because after all, you go back to Luke chapter 18 when you first meet Apollos, and Luke describes Apollos as a man of words. He was a great speaker. He was the kind of guy, you ever, you ever heard a preacher like this? Use your imagination, who just held your attention in the palm of their hand. And nobody complained about how long the sermon went, because he was just that good. Wouldn't that be great, Jim? What must that be like? And Apollos was that kind of guy. And if you're trying to appeal to people who really like rhetoric, and you want to impress the crowds, Apollos, there are people who want to follow you. And can I tell you the temptation it is as a preacher to fall in love with that concept? One of the hardest places to stand as a preacher is in the back of the auditorium after Sunday morning. People are very nice, and they'll say wonderful things. And you guys are a very encouraging church. We do have some brothers and sisters who make sure that you don't think too highly of yourself than you ought to. But you know how hard it is for people to tell you what a great sermon that was, how blessed we are to have you. You listen to that long enough and you're tempted to start believing that they can't live without me. Paul, there are people who want to follow you in Corinth. Apollos, there are people who are willing to be your disciples. You can take them wherever you want. You can have your own following of people. And it's to that temptation and that mindset that Paul sets back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and says, let's talk about what the church is to begin with. So I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, because what Paul does in this chapter is he walks you through three different pictures of what the church is. And when you think about what those images are and what that picture looks like, then you can come back and say, well, what does that mean for us as members of that church and what does that mean for our preachers, the people and leaders working among us? Because you have to understand what the church is all about to begin with. So take your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'll show you how Paul paints these pictures. Picture number one. 
verse 5, who is Apollos and who is Paul? We are servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Look at verse 9. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field. That's the church. It's like a, it's like a field out there. Isaiah liked this image. Paul, uh, God sent Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5. And Isaiah tells this story of how Israel was the vineyard of God. And God planted that vineyard. God tended that vineyard. God put a watchtower on that vineyard. God and Isaiah liked that image of the people of God being a field, a vineyard. And Jesus did the same thing, Matthew 21. When he paints the image of a kingdom like, using Isaiah's words, like, like this vineyard. And, and people are entrusted with the care of God's vineyard, but the vineyard belongs to God. Now, think about the, the implications of this imagery. If the church is like a field, Paul says, then I walked out and I planted that. I started this process. And Paul will argue elsewhere that he's only doing this because God works through him. But Paul says, I planted and someone else came along to water this field. I didn't do this on my own. This is not my work by itself. Apollos is just as important in this process as is Paul. And when Paul uses this image, one of the things that he wants them to understand is it takes all of us. I plant, Apollos watered, but God at the end of the day chose whether that would grow or not grow. Preachers sometimes get tempted to look at the attendance numbers of a church. And then they'll go tell other people, you know, when I got to that church, there were 150 people. But now, after all these years of my preaching, there are 250 people. Who did that? Paul says, I'm not the one that gives the increase. And... And this image of the field, Paul is trying to call them to understand that it takes more than one people, one, one person. Paul did go to Corinth, and he did minister there, and Paul did introduce the gospel there, but Paul went off somewhere else and did other mission work. What happened to that church when Paul stepped away? Well, Apollos came through. And Apollos kept teaching and, and kept leading. It wouldn't have happened without Paul, but it wouldn't have happened without Apollos. That's what it says about the preachers, that image of the field. What it says about the preachers is it's not about you. In fact, if you look at the text again, Paul says, what are we? We're just servants. We're just the guys out there working in the field. But at the end of the day, the increase happens because of God. Now, I want you to think about what that means about the church. It means we need each other. 
that there's not one of us more important than the others. That the church is always bigger than just one person. Paul was just as much a part of the church as was Apollos, even though they served different roles. One of the things that always amazes me wandering around Wilshire is all of the stuff that happens in this church that most people never see. I mean, you see Jim, and you see me, and you see the elders, you see the deacons, you see Ethan, you, you see a lot of stuff up front, but what you don't see are all the, the things happening in ministry behind the scenes. I mean, sometimes you get a glimpse when you look at the, the bulletin. You find out that Emily Grambling is trying to get women together to have a study together. You're not here during the week sometimes when Mary and Hoppy come through to, to track down something to help somebody that had a need. You're not here when Tim Higgins walks in and says, I'm going to fix the air conditioner so you don't sweat, so people will be comfortable. You don't see all that happening, but it happens. There's even a place in this church for people like Danielle Garrett. She was just minding her own business back there asleep, and she hears her name out. But the, she was not asleep. I'm just kidding. At least I can't tell. But baby showers and wedding showers and encouragement, you don't always see that. But the church has to have people who do that. And when Paul uses this image that we're a field, the implications of that are we need people working. And everyone out in that field working is a vital part of what God is doing. But at the end of the day, God gives the increase. God calls us to share the gospel, to reach out, to love our neighbor, to show hospitality and grace. And sometimes, through that, the church will grow. And sometimes, through that, it won't be reflected in the numbers in the pews. Our youth group a few weeks ago went to Watonga. And that church there is small but doing remarkable things for that community. And it's tempting to step back and say, well, what are we doing wrong? And one of the things that 1 Corinthians reminds you of is you go do what God has sent you to do. You plant, you water, and then you trust God will do what God will do in His own time and in His own way. So Paul says the first thing we need to understand is we're just, we're the field, we're the place where God is working and, and people are serving and we need each other. That's the first picture you need to have. What is the church, Paul? Well, Paul says... It's like a field. Well, the second image that Paul gives us comes in verse 10. He actually ends verse 9 with it. We are a building. But verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation. Someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. No one can lay any foundation other than that which has been laid. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Like a building. A building 
that is made out of certain materials. And he lists the materials. You've got different options when you're building. You can go with what Paul says here, gold and silver and precious stones, that'll hold. Or you can build out of wood and hay and straw. And this is kind of Paul's three little piggies story. Right? What did you build your house out of? Did you build it out of straws and sticks? Or did you do the hard work and did you build it out of brick? And then when the huffing and puffing starts, what's going to be left standing? And Paul says that's what the church is. If the church is a building, then the foundation of that building must be Jesus Christ. You can go out and you can build a church on all sorts of things. And you can attract people with all sorts of things. But if you want a church that will stand, and will stand when God calls us to answer, it better be built on Jesus Christ. You want to build a church around a a flawed person? That won't stand. You want to build a church on a flawed philosophy or ideology that doesn't express Jesus Christ as Him crucified? Maybe you want to build a church so that, so that we all believe the same thing politically. Or maybe you want to build a church so that we all live in the same income bracket, that you're going to design a church and that's going to be the surface, the foundation of the church, so that you can come here and look like me and believe like me, live like me. When you stand before God, that thing will crumble. You want to build a church that will last? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Paul says it's, it's all about what you choose to construct your church, the church. And he says, as a master builder, I have to go out and I have to find what means something. And I build it on Jesus Christ, the foundation. And then one day when we stand before God, it'll be tested. And so as you read through who we are, why do we exist, why do we serve, why do we make the decisions we make in this church? How do we spend the resources that God has entrusted to us? If somehow the answer doesn't get you back to Jesus and Him crucified, then you're building on something that will not last. If the foundation is Jesus, then everything we do, every decision we make, runs through that filter alone. So think about the implications of that for preachers. What are we investing our time and efforts towards? You don't want a preacher who talks about themselves. You don't want a preacher who brags about their accomplishments. You don't even want a preacher just because they're good looking. You want a preacher who says, it's not about me. Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Paul understood that because Paul knew if he stood up and preached in front of the church with, with eloquent words and with great philosophy and with impressive looks and credentials, he would win people over. He could do that. People could flock to Jesus if we replaced the Jesus that is. But the Jesus of Scripture that is him crucified, Paul says, is a stumbling block. People don't like the thought of following someone who was crucified by the Romans. Paul knew that he could still say the word Jesus, but de-emphasize that part of the story. But that wouldn't be building a church on the true Jesus. If you're going to build a church on Jesus, it's not just part of the story. It's all of the story. Even the parts that other people aren't comfortable with. And there's a third image that Paul uses. And it comes down towards the last part of the chapter, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. If you lived in first century Corinth, you were familiar with temples. They would scatter the landscape. You ever travel to Rome or Ephesus, they're magnificent structures, glistening marble. If you were a member of the church, you're a Christian of the first century, you might have kind of an inferiority complex. You didn't meet in some marbled hall in some beautiful temple. You met in houses. Your priests weren't extravagantly dressed and paid. They weren't elaborate feasts and festivals. You were just a group of people gathered in a house, believing in a crucified, buried, and risen Messiah. But Paul says, don't forget, God dwells with you. You are his temple. And Paul loved this image. He does it with the church in Ephesus that was very familiar with the temple of Artemis in their backyard. He says, you're the temple. You're the dwelling place of God. Now think about the implications of that. The implications for preachers is this. You do not destroy God's temple. That's what he says in verse 17. If you destroy the temple of God, God's going to destroy you. So preachers, if you want to use the church and your power and influence to manipulate, to deceive, to pad your own pockets, to build your own resume, you're going to stand before God and I don't want to be you. You do not destroy the temple of God. And think about what that means for us as a church. I know church can be frustrating. People can be irritating at times. Still God's place of dwelling. One of the things that's remarkable to me about Corinth is this place was messed up. 
I told you at the beginning of the sermon all the different headaches and all the different questions going on, that they're, they're fighting over which preacher they want to follow. They're fighting in chapter 5 about a man and his sexual ethics. They're fighting in chapter 6 about suing one another and whether we can spend time with prostitutes. In chapter 7, they're fighting about who to marry and not marry. In chapter 8, it's about food. Chapter 9, it's about Paul and his apostleship. Chapter 10, we get back to food. In chapter 11, it's about women. It's about communion. And then chapter 12 and 13 and 14, it's about spiritual gifts. All of these problems, and they're messed up. And Paul still says God dwells among them. God's presence is not dependent on our perfection. Aren't you grateful for that? If if Paul can say to the Corinthian church that you're still the temple of God in all of your imperfections, what does that say when I get frustrated with the church? When I get frustrated with with somebody else here, frustrated with the leadership or frustrated, if God will still dwell here, who am I to walk away from it? You are the temple of God. Jim mentioned this a few weeks back, that that word you, if Paul were writing in modern English in Oklahoma, it would be y'all. Y'all are the temple of God. Plural. Yes, God dwells in us individually as Christians, but God dwells in all of us as his church. And if God is willing to dwell in his church, then Paul and Apollos need to understand, and I think they do, it's not about me. It's not about my agenda. It's not about the people who are impressed with me or my approach to preaching or my approach to ministry. It is God's temple, not my own playground. That's what Paul says preachers need to understand. And Paul also wants them to understand what that means for the church, that God dwells in our presence. I don't know if you guys remember the name of George and Myrtle Rummel were remarkable members of this church for years. They did a lot of wonderful things. George wasn't the kind to be up front with the spotlight, but George and Myrtle served in wonderful ways. George was a fireman for 30 years until he retired as deputy chief in 1972. One story I remember about George, and I wish I remembered the details, but I don't, but George was a fireman. And George accidentally set the church on fire once. It wasn't this church building. It was another church building. It had something to do with the baptistry heater. The details are lost on me. But here you have a fireman who set the church on fire. What an image. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 wants the church to be fireproof. He wants the church to be built out of something that will not fall apart, that will withstand every trial, every temptation, every persecution, every arrogant and selfish attempt to change it. If you want a fireproof church, it's got to be built on Jesus Christ. Nothing else will stand.
And so Paul and Apollos understood this temptation to burn the church down. If Paul wanted to take this group of people tempted to follow him, he could have done that. And if Paulos wanted to take the other group of people and start his own church with his own followers and his own philosophy, he could have done that. But both of them realized it was not about them. The church, Paul says, is like a field that belongs to God. It's like a building that's built on the foundation of Jesus. And it's like the temple where God himself dwells. So I find it rather interesting as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians. And you come to chapter 16 and verse 12. Paul mentions Apollos one last time. He says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. Now that, that is so interesting to me for, for two reasons. Number one, Paul knows that there are people who like Apollos more than they like him. And Paul still wants Apollos to go to that church. He still sees the ministry that Apollos needs to give to that church. But the second thing that impresses me about that is Apollos says, now's not a good time. And I don't know all that's behind that. I don't know if his schedule was full, if he had other plans. But I suspect it may be Apollos knows that his being there may not be the healthiest thing for that church at the moment. And what does that say about the way Paul and Apollos work together in their ministry? It says they realize it's bigger than them. Brothers and sisters, Jim and I want Wilshire to be a fireproof church. A church that is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. A church where every member is an intricate part of the work that God is doing here for His glory. So that when whatever comes our way, whatever test we face, when we stand before God, Wilshire will still be standing. That's what church is supposed to be. And that's who we're trying to be. Well, this morning I want to offer you the invitation of Jesus Christ to become part of God's field, part of God's building, and part of God's temple. So that God can work through you to accomplish his work in this world for his kingdom. And to do that, trusting in Jesus, some of you may need to do that this morning by confessing Jesus and being buried with him in baptism. Some of you may need to come back asking for the prayers of the church and the help of your brothers and sisters who love you. If we can do any of that for you this morning, as God's church, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.